2: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 231. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fine show tonight. Tell you what's coming in today's show... Graphic Fan by Fred Heimbaugh. Then we have the main fiction is The Johnson Maneuver, which is by Ian Douglas, which is one of these new short stories that have come out in John Joseph Adams' fantastic new anthology, Armad. I'll give you a little bit more heads up with that later on in the show. Then we have our JJ Campanella with his science news. Then right at the end, we have First Chapters again, which is A Jar of Wasps by Louis Villazon so jumping straight into 231 of starship so far we have our very own fred heimbaugh with graphic fan fred sir
1: hello sofa people it's fred heimbaugh the graphic fan and on behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet earth i bring you greetings I can't wait to tell you about an ongoing series I found from Vertigo Press called The Unwritten. But before dessert, we've got to eat our vegetables. I'm going to start with a graphic novel that left me confusticated and be bothered. It's called The Death Ray, and it's by Daniel Klaus. And it's got lots of attention. It got reviewed by National Public Radio here in the United States. And it made Time Magazine's list of top ten novels. And note, that's top ten novels, not top ten graphic novels of 2011. So I had to read it. The Death Ray is the story of a loser teen named Andy, who inherits a futuristic handheld weapon from his long-dead scientist dad. It's a ray gun, and it's curvy, and it's very retro-futuristic. At the prompting of his friend, Andy assumes the role of superhero, for a while anyway. Andy, however, lacks the imagination, or more to the point, the character, to pull off the role but that doesn't stop him from offing a half-dozen or so people over the course of his pointless, unhappy life. The death ray gun itself is not very remarkable. The people it destroys disappear without a trace. But, you know, any handgun is just as deadly as this death ray. All the death ray can really do for you is simplify the business of corpse disposal. The artwork of this graphic novel is crude in a calculating way. It contributes neatly to the overall sense of adolescent cluelessness and backwater squalor. The art, and the book as a whole, is a coherent artistic success, but I say that joylessly. As I read this book, I thought I didn't like it, and you know, I still think that's the case, but I'm starting to doubt. I've noticed this story really got under my skin and stayed with me. That's always a sign that something potent is going on. The tropes here are science fiction, but the genre is literary fiction, so plot is deprecated. That biased me against it, along with the absence of any character to admire or even pity. Even so... Weeks after reading it, I find myself still thinking of it. The odd panels of awkward sexual intercourse that are dropped in randomly throughout the narrative are one example of this book's mysterious power. I found those panels confusing and gratuitous, but now I see that they add to the overall menace in a way I can't quite explain. I guess they feel like clues in a crime scene where no one has told you for sure that a crime has even been committed. I couldn't shake the suspicion that the book contained something deep that I had missed. Maybe I'm the loser who can't make use of the weapon this book has handed to me. As I finished the book, I was congratulating myself for uncovering one deep truth left unexplored by most superhero narratives, that, in a way, we're all potential superheroes. Consider, most of us live our lives within the constraints of legality and respectability. When heinous crimes are committed, we, people like us, are never suspected. Think of the latent power that gives us. Most murders are solved because the murderer acts impulsively and or stupidly. A person of even average intelligence and patience, that is, you or I, could easily plan a murder that could not be solved. The mystery fiction genre is obsessed with a trope you might call the perfect crime, Making a crime perfect is completely unnecessary. A murder committed by you or I need not outwit Sherlock Holmes. He's, well, he never existed. It merely needs to outwit whatever overworked, undermotivated gumshoe got assigned to the case. What I'm saying is, you or I possess the power to kill anyone we like with impunity that's a superpower in my book and reading the death ray made me realize it come to think of it maybe that's the secret of the death ray that i thought i missed come to think of it some more should anyone among my relations or acquaintances die mysteriously any time in the coming year this podcast will no doubt become Exhibit A in my murder trial. Dang it! If I feel compelled to give the death ray a thumb sideways, I have no such equivocation for our next graphic novel. My enthusiasm for Unwritten is unlimited. The Unwritten is by Mike Carey and Peter Gross, with additional art supplied by others in various volumes. In the cleverest fiction opening I have ever seen, Unwritten starts at the end. The end, that is, of the thirteenth in a series of fourteen fantasy novels. Let me explain. The Unwritten contains a story within a story. The inner story is a series of fantasy novels written by a man named Wilson Taylor, the father of the main character of The Unwritten, a young man named Tom Taylor. The fantasy series is a Harry Potter knockoff. We're talking about the inner story now. The fantasy series is a Harry Potter knockoff called Tommy Taylor. Wilson's son, Tom Taylor is the inspiration for the boy wizard named Tommy Taylor. But no, as you read along, it appears perhaps the boy wizard Tommy in the inner story is the inner inspiration for the Tom Taylor of the outer story. When you're reading it, this isn't as confusing as I make it s- sound, although in the outer story, plenty of adoring fans want to confuse Tom and Tommy. In fact, Tom slash Tommy is literally worshipped by cultists, as well as stalked by a disturbed fan who dresses and styles himself in the manner of Count Ambrosio, the vampire villain of the Tommy Taylor books. The narrative bleeds back and forth between the inner story and the outer story effortlessly. The Tommy Taylor story is an unabashed, high-fantasy, J.K. Rowling ripoff, And that's admitted right up front. But this is much more subtle than a simple parody. Yes, Tommy sports a magic wand and horn-rimmed glasses. He's got a... Two friends, a girl and a boy, and he's even got a companion animal. It's an adorable winged cat named Mingus. But when you start seeing the parallels between Tom and Tommy, and especially as weird things start happening to Tom, you start wondering, what genre will the outer story land in? Clearly, it's a mystery, uh, a classic mystery story, why did Tom's father disappear before writing the final novel of the series? Beyond that, more confusions wait to be resolved. Will the magic of the inner story bleed outwards into the outer story? Will the outer story become a work of fantasy or science fiction or even horror? After all, Tom is menaced by a murderous, mutton-chopped man named Pullman with a mechanical hand that has paranormal properties. This playing with levels and peeling the layers of the onion is, of course, a favorite trick of postmodernism. It's a tricky trick. Done wrong, it dissolves into a goo of meaningless words, much like the victims of Pullman's mechanical hand. It can get pretty extreme, as when it starts making fun of the tropes of postmodernism itself. I don't get even a hint of postmodern ironic detachment here. The authors of Unwritten love the genres they deconstruct. This love is what redeems the unwritten. All the tricks are for making love and making fun. There's no showing off going on. The Unwritten has got me turning pages like nothing I've read in a long while. I've read the first five volumes so far. The fifth volume just came out a month or two ago, and Vertigo Press seems unlikely to stop turning the crank on such such a successful series. The series is quite episodic, so I think they could milk this one for a long time. The various episodes allow for dramatic changes in visual styles, which keeps things interesting and makes possible the constant expansion of the list of artists. The Unwritten uh, has a major theme, which is the way stories, or more precisely, myths, control the world. And it stands ready to deconstruct and reconstruct every conceivable genre. So, yeah. This could go on and on. I love the subplot with the Peter Cottontail character who lives in the Hundred Acre Woods and has a filthy mouth and an utterly ruthless hunger for revenge. I love the chapter that, out of the blue, turns the story into a choose-your-own-adventure. And you know, that's not a gimmick. You're left uncertain about the true story of Lizzie Tom's female sidekick-turned-girlfriend when you're done reading that chapter, The Choose-Your-Own-Adventure, and that uncertainty is exactly what the author wants. I love the way Frankenstein's monster shows up periodically to help us piece things together. And I'm loving the secret cabal of... "Mm, But I've said too much. Read it and find out for yourself. A word of caution cuss words, bloody violence, and a couple of bedroom scenes puts this squarely in the grown-up category. Don't make the mistake I made of reading the first six pages of The Unwritten, hyping it up to your young kids, and then sheepishly telling them later that no, they will not be allowed to read the comic that Daddy has fallen in love with. That's it for The Unwritten. This is the graphic fan saying... See you next time.
2: And there you go. It's nice to have you back on the board, sir. Yes, I hope you are well and fine. Next up is the main fiction, and it is The Johnson Maneuver by Ian Douglas. I'll give you a little heads up about Ian Douglas. Ian Douglas is the pseudonym of William H. Keith, the author of over 100 novels, mostly military SF and technical thrillers. His work includes the Marines in Space trilogy, Legacy, Heritage and Inheritance, written as Ian Douglas. Under the name of H.J. Riker, he wrote the Long Running Seals, the Warrior Breed series... More recently, he collaborated with author Stephen Coons on the best-selling spy thrillers in Deep Black series, Arctic Gold, Sea of Terror, and Death Wave. Now, like I say, this story is in the new collection that's come out by John Joseph Adams. Armad, and it's out date. Well, it was out yesterday, which was the twenty-third. So it's now there, available in all fine department stores, bookshops, and everywhere. Can, I'll put a link on. To John's site and come over and get it. I love John's pitch for the book. You know, it's like the, or the tagline, armad, part human, part machine, all soldier. Go on there. Uh. Other authors in there, Jack Campbell, Brandon Sanderson, Tanya Huff, Daniel H. Wilson, Alistair Reynolds and Carrie Vaughan, amongst others. And if you go on to John's site, there's a couple of links there for other stories in this collection that are there on, I know there's one on IO9 as well. I'll give you a little more about the anthology. John says, pseudo power on lock and load. <laughs> just get you going, doesn't it? Decades ago, Starship Troopers captivated readers with its vision of a future war in which powered armored soldiers battle giant insects on a hostile alien planet. Today, with the success of Iron Man, Halo and Mech Warrior, and with real robotic ex- exoskeletons just around the corner, the idea of super powered combat armor and giant mecha has never been more exciting and relevant. Do you know that's what I'll, if you just have a look at actually what john's done over the past few years you know with these kind of themed anthologies they just are and i know there's i mean i don't know if anyone kind of got a sneak little clip there was a little brief went around the internet there john's teamed up with daniel h wilson to do the i think it's like an up robot uprising collection as well that is just going to be awesome that one but like you say, this just hits nails on heads everywhere. Like you say, you can get it at you know you can get the ebooks from Bain Books do pop over there or Amazon the usual plates and actually in bricks and mortars as well. By God yes. There's a first for a while. Twenty three stories in there. There's a forward by Austin Scott Card. Lightspeed eventually is going to have Nomad by Karen Lauchi coming on as Tex. And Wyad's going to have, or has got, Christy Yance transfer of ownership. Like I say, io9's got Jungle Walkers by David Kletcher and Tobias S. Bukel. So if you want something to dip into, just little short stories all on the subject of Armad, please think about this one. The story is narrated by Scott Couchman. Scott says is working on a science fiction and fantasy writing career and voice acting career. He is an institutional designer and corporate trainer by day, writer by night, podcaster and voiceover talent occasionally. He is the family geek and generally a sleep deprived zombie most of the time. He lives in the pocket of Los Angeles area that no one seems to talk about and even fewer know about. With his wife and two sons, a hamster and a varying number of fish, depend on the deer. I've got that as well. <laughs> fish is dead. Get another one. I'll put a link on the Scott site. Scott's done or, doing a, a few narrations for Starship Sova. And just like I say, this is a lovely narration. And I was telling Scott, you know, why it was. Just see if you can spot why it is. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
3: The Johnson Maneuver by Ian Douglas. The motto of the U.S. Marine Corps' embassy security group was, appropriately enough, in every clime and place, and that Marine Gunnery Sergeant Carl Schaefer had decided had become something of an understatement. The world of Pi-Cubed Orionis IV, dubbed Cernunos by the Human Contact Liaison Group on the surface, and something unpronounceably like cha by the natives, was young, raw, and hot. The local gravity was a shade over six-tenths of a g. The atmosphere, dense and thick. The star, listed as type F5V on the main sequence, was just 27 light-years from Sol, right next door by interstellar standards, and the second-nearest planetary system found so far to have evolved intelligent life. At least, Schaefer thought, with some amusement, there was supposed to be intelligent life here. He'd had a number of encounters with the natives during the past few weeks, and he wasn't entirely certain that the Xenosophontologists had gotten that part right. He was standing now on the parapets of the Earth-CL compound, looking out over the city of Karnon. Low, white domes and flat-roofed octagons. Columns of smoke were rising from several parts of the city now, and his helmet mics were picking up the usual chorus of deep fluting and disharmonic hoots and wailings that served as Cha'an language. The crowds were working themselves up to a frenzy. It might be another demonstration, but the embassy guard marines had been warned that the rebels might attack. You think they'll let us load up, Gunnery Sergeant? Lance Corporal Carol Passerati asked him. Like Schaefer, she was in ceremonial dress armor, peacock bright in bronze, blue, red, and white. He couldn't see her face behind the opaque white visor. It really sounds like they're building up to something big. I know, he told her. Hang tough. As long as they're still talking and the king crab still says it likes us, they shouldn't bother us. A crowd, a big one, was gathering at the main gate— "'chanting as they gesticulated with clenched multiple fists. "'He couldn't tell what they were saying, "'not without linking into the embassy's translation, A.I., "'but they didn't sound happy or friendly. "'Yeah, but how can they tell if it does like us?' Passerati asked. "'Beats me, Passerati. "'I guess when they knock down the gate, we'll know we've worn out our welcome.' "'He turned away. "'Stay sharp, Marine.' "'Aye, aye, Commander.' Schaefer was a gunnery sergeant, a non-commissioned officer, but as head of the Marine Security Attachment assigned to the Pi-Cubed Orionis IV Embassy, he held one of the very few enlisted billets in the Corps where an NCO could hold the title of commander. He had ten enlisted Marines under his command. His boss was the embassy's RSO, a civilian federal agent named Warner, an unpleasant piece of work. He locked through into the embassy building and pulled off his helmet. The atmosphere outside was almost breathable, but there was too much sulfur dioxide from the young planet's numerous volcanic vents for human health. You could get by with a breather mask and goggles here, but marine guards outside wore their Class A armor, which filtered out the SO2 and reduced the high O2 partial pressure to Earth normal. After a moment's pause, he accessed his in-head circuitry and opened up a private communications channel. "'Mr. Warner? Schaefer,' he said. "'I need a word, please.' "'I'm awfully busy, Commander,' Warner's nasal voice shot back. "'Can it wait?' "'No, sir, but it's short. "'I need your authorization to go weapons live. "'That will not be necessary, Commander.' Excuse me, sir, but I feel it is. A large crowd is gathering outside, and it sounds like they're working themselves into attack mode. They've never attacked us before. We don't know what attack mode for them would be. All I'm asking for, sir, is authorization to lock and load, just in case. There was a long hesitation on the other end. Then Warner's voice said, Come on, then. The office of the embassy's regional security officer, the RSO, was spartan but high-tech. Surveillance monitors covered the walls from deck to overhead, and Reginald Warner was ensconced within a desk that had more in common with the cockpit of a VA-90 demon-wrath than a piece of office furniture. Several screens showed different views of the mob at the front gate. The main view wall, however was dominated by the startlingly deep purple cyclopean eye of (coughs) Ngakchukra'u, the senior administrator to the Ekcha'a hierarchy's chief. Call it the king's prime minister. Its name and title were displayed in English at the top of the screen. This, Warner said to the being, speaking into a microphone on his desk, is the leader of our security guard here at the embassy, Commander Schaefer. Schaefer heard in the background the computer-rendered blend of warbling, hooting, and glottal-stopped consonants that was the translation of what the RSO had just said. When they stopped, the being on the screen replied with some warbling of its own. I respect you and what you represent. The consecutive translation scrolled up the right-hand side of the view wall, accompanied by the flat voice of the embassy's A.I. as it spoke. "'May long you hold fast to your females. "'May long you be known to be prosperous.' "'Say thank you,' Warner said in a harsh whisper, "'when Schaefer didn't immediately respond. "'Thank you,' he told the image. "'He knew better than to add sir. "'Hierarchy administrators were drones, "'sexless and landless, "'and sex-based honorifics could be misunderstood, "'but not powerless.' The hierarchy's ruler, Ngak ng- tra- tra- was also a drone. Having drones in charge was the only way the Ek could have anything like a government without bull male legislators slaughtering one another on the floor of the Executive Congress over minor legal disagreements. Commander Schaefer, Warner added, seems to feel that the situation outside the gate is extremely serious. He's concerned about... Territorial incidents. The eldest drone has issued the firmest suggestions. The AI both said and printed on the screen translating the string of hoots, pops, and consonants. There will be no encroachment of territory. Your females will be safe. Humans had been studying the Ekcha'a's language for perhaps 30 years now. Vocabulary, grammar, and inflection all were now well understood and translation in either direction was not a problem. Understanding the psychology behind the words, however, most definitely was. There, Commander, you see? Warner spoke loudly now, so that his words were picked up for translation. The eldest drone has assured us of our safety. Sir, Schaefer said. I still think it would be a good idea to— Now, he shouted the word, cutting Schaefer off. Then he continued in a calmer voice. No, Commander. What you suggest would not be a good idea. Not now. The Ekcha'a set great store in a martial appearance, but we do not want any unfortunate incidents, do we? Meaning, Schaefer thought, we can carry laser rifles, but not the batteries to charge them. He doesn't trust us. I'm not talking about incidents, sir. I'm talking about what happens if that mob decides to come through the front gate. We have the assurance of the eldest drone that they will not. Am I right? Mm -hmm. He made a pretty good approximation of the alien's syllables, at least for a human limited to lips, tongue, and larynx, as opposed to paired air bladders and diaphragms. My counterpart speaks precision and truth. You are dismissed, Commander counterpart, meaning the ekcha'a on the screen was in charge of the local army, as Warner was in charge of the security group. Schaefer almost said something more, but the warning glare in Warner's eyes told him he would get nowhere with an argument, especially with the native looking on. Aye, aye, sir. He came to attention, turned on his heel, and walked out of the office. Damn the man. And damn all red-tape bureaucrats, all self-serving politicians, and all sanctimonious REMFs, military and civilians, who thought conciliation and peace were synonymous. He headed back toward the security unit squad bay. He needed to think. For almost ten years now, humans had been on Cerninos. The human compound wasn't precisely an embassy— at least not as humans understood the word, but a contact liaison facility housing the lab and research staffs for the xenosophontological mission. This world was of great interest to the planetologists. The pi-cubed Orionis system was young, only about 1.4 billion years old, not nearly enough time, according to the standard evolutionary model, for sapient life to appear. Either the standard model was wrong, or the ekcha'a, together with the local biosphere, were themselves relative newcomers to the world. The CL team was here to learn as much as possible about the Sununans, their biology, their sociology, their culture, and their myths. After several years of contact, the eldest drone had agreed to receive an earth embassy in the principal city the humans called Karnon. It turned out that the concept of extraterritoriality, of a plot of land within the city that technically was earth rather than cha'a, was easy enough for the ekcha'a to understand. Much of Ekcha'a's culture was centered around the idea that bull males claimed areas of land for themselves and their harems, and fought to defend them. The eldest had ceded a walled-in block of buildings to the C.L. Mission, an area of land a little more than one hectare in size, and the earth facility had been built there. The Hesperus had arrived with Ambassador Gonzalez two years ago a blatant attempt by Geneva to force the Akcha'a to accept diplomatic contact with Earth. The first Marine security contingent had come with her. Schaefer and his Marines had arrived six weeks ago on the Boer, relieving the original security team, while Ambassador Tarleton had replaced Gonzales. The replacements had arrived in the middle of what amounted to an all-out civil war. The locals didn't see it that way, not as war. The drones ran things in Ekcha'a society, but they had no real power save what they were granted day to day by the local dominant bull males. Those males had initially agreed to cede the compound to the off-worlders. But in recent months, more and more the native population, both dominant and submissive males, the females, and even some of the drones, had been insisting that the aliens needed to abide by Ekcha'a traditions. And that meant fighting for their land. The ambassadors, both Gonzales and Tarleton, had refused the repeated formal challenges, of course. An embassy was an instrument of peace, after all, of diplomacy, ideas the Ekcha'a had difficulty understanding. fractious and belligerent, especially over territorial matters, Ekcha'a history appeared to be a very long saga of land grabs, territorial squabbles, alliances, betrayals, and bloodshed. Not wars as such, but as the niceties of day-to-day life. And it was beginning to look as though the humans were about to be drawn into the latest round of not-quite-war confrontations. The drone council that served as this world's government had so far resisted demands that the off-worlders play along, claiming that humans were not true males, that they didn't understand how Ekcha'a thought, and so were exempt from the need to claim and fight for land. While a large part of the population was still willing to go along with this, a number of dominant males had begun organizing gangs with the goal of forcing Earthers to fight. They'd broken into a local armory, seized military weapons, and begun a campaign of demonstrations, arson, and rioting that had paralyzed Karnon for weeks. From their point of view, it wasn't as though it was war. Schaefer didn't trust the drones, Ostensibly a third Ekcha'a sex, they were in fact sexless, originally male or female Ekcha'a who'd metamorphosed out of their sexual phase. In primitive Ekcha'a society, they'd been specialized caregivers, the nurturers, child raisers, teachers, and feeders. Now they ran the planet, trying to maintain at least a semblance of peace between the hormone-drunken clans and gangs of bull males. They couldn't give orders to the bulls. No one could do that except for a bigger, stronger bull. But they could make suggestions. And by long-standing tradition, those suggestions generally were honored. And the Marines understood tradition very well indeed. Commander Schaefer! The voice was Passerati's, her call sounding from the tiny speakers implanted behind and below his ears. We've got trouble! Looks like the mob's coming through the gate. I'm in the squad bay. Send me a link. His cerebral implant, nano-chelated within his brain, gave him electronic control over devices nearby. He thought-clicked the big view wall display to life, tuning in on the image feed from the camera mounted on Passerati's helmet. Outside, the sun was setting an intensely bright, hot, pinpoint glare casting long shadows through the streets of Carnon. He could see the high wall surrounding the embassy compound and the six-meter-wide iron bar gate across the entrance. The mob filled the plaza beyond the compound wall, gesticulating, whooping, surging, a wild cacophony of angry xenophobia. They did not, in fact, look much at all like crabs, though they had evolved from arboreal pseudo Each was twice as massive as a human, standing two and a half to three meters tall, with four jointed legs around a powerfully muscular tail, kept tightly curled up underneath like a huge nervous lobster. Possessing both internal and external skeletons, they were sheathed in armor like overlapping strips of hardened leather. Four thick-muscled arms grew evenly spaced around what generously might be called the head, a recessed bowl on the upper end of the highly flexible torso, protecting a single small and armor-enclosed eye, deeply buried to protect it from the hot local sun. The feeding pouch was located somewhere beneath the thorax. Four slits further down the body allowed it to breathe, as well as speak. Ekcha'a's speech sounded like the discordant hoots and warblings from the brass section of an orchestra just getting tuned up, especially when they were worked up about something, which lately seemed to be most of the time. The arms were their most distinctive feature, massive, bare of external armor, three-fingered and bright blue, branching out from the recessed single eye like the petals of a flower. The ekcha'a closest to the gate were gripping the bars with all fours, rattling them furiously. None of the natives Schaefer could see was carrying a weapon, thank God, but those powerful arms could do serious damage to an unprotected human. The worst part of the situation was Warner's order that the Marine Guard not carry charged lasers. The battery packs all were in the basement armory, sealed and locked, and only Warner had the keypad code. He tried another call to Warner, but got the busy graphic on his in-head display. He might have been able to kick the RSO's door in and pound on his desk, and to hell with what the -the crab-on-the-wall screen thought about it, but damn it, there wasn't time. Sergeant Broder stood beside Schaefer, looking at the mob. What do you think, Commander? he asked. Looks like the Boxer Rebellion all over again. I was just thinking that. Schaefer had long been a student of military history, especially the history and tradition of the Corps, and that included the so-called Boxer Rebellion of some 300 years ago. The Dowager Empress in her palace in Beijing had claimed she was trying to protect the foreign legations attacked by the frantic, rampaging boxers. In fact, secretly, she'd been behind much of the anti-foreign rioting culminating in the 55-day siege of the legation compound that was still a heroic footnote in the Marine Corps' history. The eldest drone, Schaefer was convinced, was playing a similar game. The Marines called the asexual drone the King Crab. Schaefer turned and walked to the rear of the squad bay where the security group's armor lockers were kept. Schaefer was wearing his Class As, which should reflect anything the locals had in the way of small arms. Although it was always difficult to compare mutually alien technologies, the Ekcha'a were generally thought to be a couple centuries behind the human confederation. No space flight as yet, no lasers, no nano, no heavy EM or plasma weapons. Small comfort. Chemically propelled slugs could still be lethal and the Acha'a certainly had the advantage of numbers. The city plaza outside the gates was packed with them. The embassy's AI estimate put their numbers at between ten and 12,000. What the hell are you going to do, Gunny? Broder asked. I'm going out there, he replied. Maybe I can talk them down. One mob, one ranger, huh? The Texas Rangers aren't here. One mob, one Marine. But that sounds about equal to me. I'll come with you. No, Schaeffer said. He was already wearing dress armor, and the heavy combat stuff was locked away with the laser power packs. He would have to content himself with a fresh armor power unit and a meta-jump pack, both of which nestled into the curve at the small of his back, the nanoactive surfaces melding with his armor and interfacing with it. As he donned his white visorless helmet, he felt the suit systems snapping on, and the icons on his in-head display came up green. Damn it, Gunny, you can't go out there alone. Maybe one man won't be as provocative as two. Besides, I want you to go up to Warner's office, okay? He drew his 12-millimeter pistol and checked the magazine and safeties before putting it back in his external holster. And do what? Schaefer turned to face Broder, the sergeant's image clear in his IHD. Get him to see you. Knock the door down if you have to. Tell him we need the armory open and the battery packs for the lasers and plasma weapons distributed. And tell him we need them now. You're going out there with your fucking service pistol? We use what we have, Schaefer told him. He grinned suddenly, though Broder couldn't see his face. The Johnson Maneuver, right? Broder shook his head. That mob ain't gonna back down, Gunny. Then I'll keep em busy until you can pass out the charge packs and break out the heavy armor, too. I'm sick of diplomacy with crabs who don't even know the meaning of the word. Aye, aye, gunnery sergeant, but I don't like this. We work with what we have, sergeant. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Hurrah! Border said, but the old battle cry was delivered flat, without emotion, and without enthusiasm. By the time Schaefer made it out of the front door of the embassy, fifteen meters from the front gate, the mob had acquired reinforcements. Thompson and Rodriguez were on guard at the door, looking decidedly nervous. "'God, Gunny,' Thompson said, pointing. "'The crabs have got armored backup!' saurian towered above the crowd, ponderously approaching the gate. "'It could not,' Schaefer thought, "'get a whole lot worse.'" The alien armor was an Ekchaa military vehicle, somewhere in size and deadliness between a tank and a personal suit of military power armor. Dubbed Sarian by marine intelligence, it combined a tracked base with an erect armored tower that mimicked the upper torso of a bull-male Ekchaa. Almost seven meters tall, the armored segmented torso could twist and turn through more than 90 degrees vertically, and rotate a full 270 side to side. At the top, four jointed chromium alloy steel arms ended in massive three-clawed pinchers. Two small ball turrets to either side of the upper torso mounted 27mm rapid-fire cannons. The vehicle's sole occupant rode inside the thing's upper torso. Organic arms operating controls inside mechanical arms, like Waldo's while his legs worked the torso articulation controls and the tracks. The technology was primitive by Confederation standards. The thing was fission-powered, slow, and awkward, its armor no match for marine lasers and plasma weapons. But the Marines didn't have lasers at the moment, none that worked, and from the way the vehicle waded up through the crowd and grasped the bars of the gate with all four arms, It looked like the vehicle was about to come into the embassy compound. Jesus, Gunny, Rodriguez said. What are we going to do? Get inside, Schaefer told the guards. Go tell Warner if he doesn't distribute power packs and armor, he won't have an embassy left to guard. Move it. Though awkward and a bit slow, the servo motors behind the Saurian's arms were strong. The upper torso of the armored vehicle strained, twisted from side to side, then lurched back a step, pulling the locked gate with it in a shower of powdered stone from the walls to either side. The mob crowding around the vehicle's tracks started forward. Schaefer stepped in front of them, drew his service pistol, and aimed it at the closest ekcha'a. He thought-clicked the translation icon on his in-head. Halt! he shouted, and an amplified voice boomed across the compound. Ah, The mob came to a halt, the ones behind piling into the backs of the ones ahead in tangles of jointed legs and segmented bodies. Schaefer's suit was now linked to the embassy's library AI. It would translate whatever he said into the principal Ekcha'a language, clicks, glottal stops, and all. But the saurian was clattering forward now, tossing the gate aside and grinding ahead of the crowd with a shrill chirping of road wheels, And the clash of tracks. Schaefer pivoted, pointing his sidearm at the machine. The pistol was a 12-millimeter Colt Blackhawk, nearly as much of an anachronism in the modern Marine Corps as an officer's dress sword, firing solid slugs instead of light or plasma. He had eight rounds in the magazine, not enough to stop a mob of 10,000 or to do serious damage to a light tank. But maybe they didn't know that, Ah, eh. The suit's amplified voice boomed again. Abruptly, the saurian halted. A string of hoots, barks, clicks, and grunts thundered from the machine. The listening AI dissected them and scrolled a running translation down the side of Schaefer's in-head display. Submit, human. I am ju of the clan G-G-G-J-U and I claim your land and your habitations for myself and my cows. Like hell, Schaefer snapped back, the pistol not wavering. Under the terms of extraterritoriality, this compound is the sovereign territory of the Earth Confederation, and you have five seconds to get the hell out. The translation echoed off the surrounding walls and buildings as Schaefer wondered how the A.I. was rendering such terms as extraterritoriality and hell. Arms spread wide, its torso bent forward and down. The saurian screamed and lurched forward. Schaefer didn't bother firing the pistol. That had been for show only, with the hope that an aggressive stance might make the bastard back down. Instead, he flexed his knees, jumped, and cut in a quick burst from his metapack. Meta, Helium-64 was an exotic rocket fuel with an exceptionally high energy density stored in the highly insulated tank on his back. It took tremendous amounts of energy using high-powered lasers to pack the helium atoms tightly together in a metastable configuration that came apart very easily when it was released into the jump jet reaction chamber and heated. In Sir six-tenths of a G... A single burst carried Schaefer high into the air, then dropping toward the armored giant. For a moment, he feared he'd miscalculated. Objects fell here at less than 600 centimeters per second squared, just five meters and a bit in the first second. From his adrenaline-charged perspective, it felt like he was hanging in the air, nakedly exposed. The flexible torso of the machine twisted about, as though trying to locate him, Then angled up, and Schaefer found himself looking down at the transparent dome located at the joining of the four outstretched arms. Twin ball turrets on the upper torso rotated up, and the saurian loosed two streams of 27 millimeter high-velocity needles. Something slammed into his side as he dropped, jarring him. His dress armor was light and thin, but designed to distribute the kinetic energy of an impact across its entire surface. Schaefer was clubbed to one side by the blow, but he managed not to tumble, managed to awkwardly grab hold of the alien tank's upper body as he struck, managed to grab and hold tight. From half a meter away, he stared into the transparent canopy at the upturned violet eye of the Saurian's pilot. The machine's torso jerked from side to side, trying to throw him off he jammed his left arm into the mass of interlocking metal plates that served as shutters to protect the clear dome, which appeared to be made of some kind of thick plastic. He didn't know if a bullet would penetrate that plastic, and ricochets might hit someone in the crowd. He wanted to stop these people, not start a war. Reversing the pistol in his right hand, Schaefer brought the butt down hammer-hard against the dome. The force of the blow jarred him to his shoulder despite his armor's dissipation of the energy. And the driver on the other side of the plastic flinched, but it didn't look like it even scratched the bubble's surface. He swung again, striking hard, and again, and again. The machine was frantic, twisting, turning, and trying to clod him with his arms. A chirping sounded in Schaefer's ear, an alarm triggered by his armor's radar and he let go, dropping onto the tank chassis as one massive mechanical fist whipped past his head and slammed into the bubble. Another arm tried to reach him, but he swarmed up the twisting torso once more, using the segmented armor plates as hand and footholds. Tucked in close, clinging to the torso and one shoulder.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
3: told he wasn't safe exactly but the clumsy thing was definitely having trouble reaching him the dome had been brightly starred by the impact of the machine's powerful arm When Schaefer climbed back into view, the metal shutters around it irised shut, protecting it. His suit's radar warned him of another incoming swing, and again he ducked, clinging tightly to the massive armored torso. The Saurian's ball-turret weaponry opened up, but Schaefer was too close for the guns to bear, and with the shutters closed over the dome, the pilot appeared to be blind. Commander Schaefer! Warner's voice called over his command channel. What the hell do you think you're doing? The Saurian snapped its torso left and right. He held on. Having a discussion with the the locals, he replied, spacing his words between attempts to shrug him off. Sir, you can't stop that thing by yourself. Tradition, sir, duty. He could hear the AI translating, but that didn't matter. Your duty is to obey my orders, gunnery sergeant. My duty is to protect my people and civilian personnel. Sir, it'll kill you. Then I suggest you open up the armory, sir. Let my people lock and load. Schaefer just hoped he could buy them enough time. A few of the more daring members of the mob were starting to clamber up onto the deck of the chassis. Swinging around, Schaefer fired two shots into the air then kicked at one particularly stubborn Ekcha'a who hadn't jumped off with the gunfire. The torso behind him twisted sharply to the right, the weapon still firing blind. Rounds slammed into the crowd, and several of the unarmored Ekcha'a fell, writhing. Shit. But at least the rest began scattering. Schaefer turned at another radar warning, ducked, dropped to the tank deck, then ducked again at another ponderous swing of an arm. He hit the pavement in front of the machine and rolled, coming up again on one knee. The alien machine loomed above him, its torso bent far forward, the arms spread apart as it reached for him. Needle-tipped bullets slammed past him and three shattered against his chest armor and helmet, splintering, staggering him, but he kept his position. The driver's dome was again open, and Schaefer could see the Ek side, staring down at him with that single, unwinking purple eye. Still kneeling, Schaefer brought his twelve-millimeter up in a two-handed grip and began firing, round after round slamming into the plastic bubble and shrieking off in wild ricochets. The star brightened, the dome cracked. The shutters irised shut again, blinding the driver. The machine gun stopped, but four arms were descending on Schaefer from above and from either side. An alarm shrilled in Schaefer's helmet, and he could smell the sulfur stink of SO-2. His armor had been breached. Again, Schaefer triggered his jump jets, sailing up and onto the Saurian's forward deck, then clambering once more up the sharply bent torso. The Saurian was firing wildly now, quick, sharp bursts that raked the pavement below or shrieked off the surrounding walls. The dome shields irised open as the driver tried to acquire his target. Schaefer rammed his left fist down into the movable armor plates, freezing them, while pointing the pistol directly at the driver's eye. "'You can do what you like to each other,' he shouted, "'but this ground is mine!' For emphasis, he slammed the butt of his pistol against the cracked plastic again, and this time he felt it actually give a bit beneath the blow. He pressed the muzzle of his sidearm against the plastic. "'Get this damn thing off my perimeter!' For long seconds, Marine and Ekcha'a warrior stared at one another. Two arms started to move, and Schaefer said, Don't! The armored plates surrounding the damaged bubble tightened against his arms, straining. I said don't! If worse came to unthinkable worst, Schaefer had one final card to play. If he released his meta tank, slapped its nano-seal surface against the tank chassis deck and switched off the insulation circuit, it would explode within a minute or so as the Helium-64 heated up. He didn't want to do that unless he had to. He wouldn't be able to control the explosion, and the Sarian, he remembered, was powered by a small plutonium reactor inside the chassis. The detonating meta would not only take out the Ekcha armor and a large number of the crowd, it would also scatter an unknown amount of radioactive plutonium across the heart of the city. Back down, you hormone-happy bastard, he thought. Back down! The pressure on his arm relaxed, and the saurian began backing up. Schaefer jumped off the front of the vehicle as it continued to back, one track skirt scraping against a gatepost with a shower of stone fragments. The crowd behind it began backing up as well, uncertain, and when they collided with unmoving members of the mob behind, they began panicking. Schaefer stepped forward, following the armored vehicle, keeping his pistol steadily pointed at the driver. He halted at the gateway. The crowd continued to disperse. The armored saurian stood there for a moment longer, and Schaefer was uncomfortably aware that the machine's turrets both were aimed directly at him. His armor had deflected everything those weapons had thrown at him so far, but it couldn't render him invulnerable. Another sustained volley might well deliver more kinetic energy than his dress armor could handle. His side and chest were aching, now that he could think about it, from the earlier impacts. Perhaps worst of all, the digital counter on the side of his pistol now read zero. He'd expended all of his rounds moments ago, and the weapon was empty. The machine raised all four arms, moving them in a complex gesture. And then... It turned on its tracks and rumbled away across the plaza. Your actions, Warner told him in his office later, were, how shall I put it, somewhat unorthodox. Yes, sir. Schaefer stood at attention in front of Warner's high-tech desk. He'd been summoned here immediately after the incident, fully expecting to be chewed a new one. Damn bureaucrats. Warner studied him for a moment, his head propped on thumb and extended forefinger. Tell me, Commander, just what made you think you could stop that vehicle yourself, with a pistol of all things? Corps tradition, sir. Tradition. Commander Schaefer, there is nothing in Marine Corps tradition. Excuse me, sir, but there is. Schaefer thought-clicked a file in his own in-head, transferring it to Warner's console. This is a download from the Embassy Library. Corps history is a, a kind of hobby of mine, sir. Warner pulled up the file on one of his monitors and read it. One Marine with a pistol, he said. He shook his head. Against a column of three tanks. Yes, sir. He had them outnumbered. We call it the Johnson Maneuver. Most Marines knew the story of Marine Captain Charles B. Johnson, just as they knew the fabled exploits of other core heroes. Dan Daly, John Bassalone, Chesty Puller, Smedley Butler, and so many, many more. You were gambling on the tech differential, weren't you? Warner demanded. That bull male couldn't hurt you through your armor. Not really, sir. He did breach my armor once, though the nanosystems sealed it off and purged my air. The thing is, I figured he was acting under both cultural and biological imperatives, assuming that if I was a male, I would fight for my territory and my right to mate. If I backed down, if we backed down, sir, we would have proven that we were submissive males and would have to do what the bull males demanded. It was simpler to just show them who was boss. Schaefer didn't add that the armor and the technology had nothing to do with things. It was never about the armor. It was about the man inside, always. Apparently, you did so, Warner continued. The ambassador called me a few moments ago. It seems that 35 female Ekcha'a have just applied for admission to the compound. According to Ekcha'a tradition, they're yours now. Your, uh, cows won in single combat, fair and square. Well, the Ambassador is going to have to find a polite way of saying thanks, but no thanks, isn't he? Something of the sort. Warner shook his head, but he almost smiled. You know, I should write you up for insubordination, Commander. But Ambassador Tarleton is quite happy with how things have turned out. You appear to have resolved a potentially serious diplomatic situation, and resolved it in our favor. I'm glad to hear it, sir but he hadn't done it for diplomacy. By the way, you might be interested to know, when the Sarian broke off the fight, it moved its arms, kind of like this. Warner's two-handed attempt at a forearmed gesture was not nearly as successful as his attempts at the spoken Ekcha'a language. According to Ng'g'rlchuk, who was watching the whole thing, the bull was saluting you as a worthy fellow warrior, and as victor. We should respect the cultural traditions of the locals, sir, Schaefer said. Just so long, he thought, as the locals learn to respect our traditions as well. USMC History Cerebral Implant Download Extract On February 2, 1983, Israeli forces were testing the resolve of 1,200 U.S. Marines in southern Lebanon, part of a U.N. peacekeeping force in the area. Seeking to discredit the Marines in order to impose their own military control over the area, Israeli infantry and armor probed Marine positions and, in one case, sent a column of three heavy Centurion tanks toward a Marine checkpoint. Captain Charles B. Johnson stood in the middle of the road, pistol drawn, forcing the tanks to stop. You will not pass through this position, Johnson said. If you go through, it'll be over my dead body. Two of the tanks broke from the third and attempted to rush past Johnson. The Marine jumped on top of the lead tank, put his forty-five pistol to Israeli Lieutenant Colonel Rafi Landsberg's head, and ordered the man to stop his tanks. Landsberg complied, and after a hurried exchange of radio traffic with his headquarters, the Centurions withdrew the Israelis tried to downplay the incident, calling it a misunderstanding on the part of the Marines. But Captain Johnson's actions were in the highest traditions of Marine Corps commitment to honour, fidelity,
2: and duty. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian Douglas. Ian and Scott, thank you very much. John, thank you, sir. Next up is our very own J.J. Campanella. Jim.
4: Greetings and pacifications, excellent listeners. And welcome to this March 2012 Science News update. Resistance is futile, for I am your host for this newest of the new science podcasts, Jim Campanella. As I sit here contemplating tonight's episode, I get a weird, deja vuish kind of feeling. You may feel the same when you hear the first couple of stories, You will swear that you heard these stories previously, and you may have, kind of. Um, It seems that some of these stories simply will not go away and continually need updates. Well, the first story, having to do with exoplanets, is one of those. It seems that for the third month in a row, interesting stuff is going on with exoplanets. What kind of interesting stuff? Well, let me tell you. Astronomers have finally found a water world. Well, kind of a water world. I don't think it's anything that Kevin Costner, our present terrestrial expert on water worlds, would get excited about. And yet, at the same time, this new exoplanet does have water. Dr. Lisa Koltenegger, an astronomer at the Max Planck Institute for Astronomy in Heidelberg, and her collaborators, published a paper this month in the Astrophysical Journal. The paper reports the finding of the first water world. This planet is not like all the others found to this point. It is also not quite new. It was actually originally discovered back in 2009, it's only new studies of it that have yielded interesting results. GJ1214b has been shown to be a steamy, water-rich sphere, but it does not have oceans of water as we do here. Haltnager and company suspect that the planet's interior is filled with some exotic, high-pressure form of solid water, unlike anything seen on Earth. The planet is just six and a half times more massive than Earth, falling into the super-Earth category, and about 2.7 times bigger in diameter. It circles a small star, which is fairly close, at about 42 light-years away from Earth. Using the Hubble telescope, Kaltnegger examined the planet as it passed in front of its star, her team could study its atmosphere at a range of infrared wavelengths and from there could estimate the planet's composition, which has been a mystery because of its low density. They have concluded that the atmosphere is at least half water and is probably crowded near the planet's surface. Apparently, the water is under such high pressure that it is not water as we know it. The paper says, quote, The interior is probably largely water molecules instead of primarily rock but it is not water in familiar frozen or liquid forms. The water is probably, in one of the more strange forms of matter, more akin to plasmid or a supersolid, I'm not even sure where the supersolid is, frankly. Well, we seem to be getting closer to finding a new Earth on almost a monthly basis now. Let's see what next month brings. In the meantime, you remember last month I discussed the oldest living clonal organism on the planet, that was a Mediterranean seagrass which has been alive on Earth in its present form anywhere between the last 15,000 and 100,000 years. Well, tonight I present you with another oldest living plant which is not clonal. In this month's proceedings in the National Academy, the just recently deceased Dr. David Gilichinsky and his team from the Russian Academy of Sciences reported growth of the oldest plant tissue ever discovered and regeneration of those ancient plants. The ancient frozen tissue that was employed for this work was radiocarbon dated at about 31,800 years old. Take that, seagrass. Gilichensky found a fruit cache in Siberia in the permafrost. It was stuffed into a burrow by a squirrel, and possibly one that looked like Scrat, that long-toothed rodent from the animated Ice Age movies. Wind-blown silt plugged the entrance to the squirrel storage chamber 38 meters underground. The burrow froze and remained frozen, keeping its content dry, until the scientists excavated it. Tissue was scraped from the fruit and bathed in nutrients and grown into fertile plants with healthy seeds that eventually sprouted in soil. Now let me clarify that last point. When I first saw this article, I thought that the researchers had simply isolated prehistoric seeds from the fruit's and allowed them to germinate. But that was not the case. The scientists took the frozen tissues and regenerated them in tissue culture in a petri dish. This can be easily done with freshly picked plants. Plants can be grown in tissue culture in an undifferentiated state called a callus culture. After getting this ancient tissue to grow, Gilichinsky then manipulated the tissue-cultured cells of the newly grown ancient organism by treatment of specific plant hormones to induce the growth of leaves and shoots and roots. We could not do this quite so easily yet with animal tissues, but you can induce higher plants to grow into any tissue you want using two hormones called auxin and cytokinin in specific ratios. The plant has tentatively been identified as being the same as the extant species Silena stenophylla, because it looks exactly like its modern relative. The common name for the Silena is the narrow-leafed campion, and that's a plant which grows in the far north even today. There has been some controversy as to whether this regenerated ancient plant actually is narrow-leafed campion or not. Some botanical experts have pointed out that the flowers, when they finally appeared, were narrower and less separated than those of today's representatives of the species. Some scientists have suggested that the recovered plant is no doubt campion, but it's a different but close relative of the narrow-leaved campion. The paper concludes with, quote, It is remarkable that under deep freeze, fruit tissues can remain viable for such a long time. This is like regenerating a dinosaur from tissues of an ancient egg. Unquote. I guess that turning up my nose at bird's eye frozen peas that have been in my big freezer restored for more than a year will now have to be a thing of the past. Certainly, if we can revive 30,000-year-old frozen plants that were around with the woolly mammoths, year-old frozen peas must still be edible. The next story up is again another deja vu moment reminding us of February. This update involves DNA sequencing and its increasing cheapness. Another company has thrown its hat into the ring, saying that they have the latest technology that will be the breakthrough in DNA sequencing that will lead the next technological generation. Two weeks ago, at the Advances in Genome Biology and Technology meeting in Florida, the company Oxford Nanopore Technologies unveiled two new DNA sequencing systems, a high-throughput system called GridIon and a smaller, cheaper, and portable system called MiniIon, which is the size of a portable computer hard drive. The company announced that both products will be available later this year, The systems rely on nanopore sequencing. Nanopore sequencing is a method for reading long, unbroken strands of DNA and RNA. A special proprietary enzyme pulls the nucleic acid strands through specially engineered nanopores, these are little tiny holes, in a polymer membrane. Meanwhile, as the DNA or RNA is being pulled through, an electronic chip senses disruptions and electrical current as uniquely identifiable combinations of nucleotide bases as each passes through the nanopore. At the meeting, company representatives presented data that demonstrated that the 48,000 base pair genome of the lambda bacteriophage virus could be sequenced as one long sequence. The nanopore chips process DNA at a rate of about 20 to 400 bases per second per pore, that is significantly faster than current sequencing systems, or for that matter, even the systems I mentioned last month. The reason it's so much faster is that you can actually sequence a whole series of strands, hundreds, maybe even thousands of strands in parallel. Parallel sequencing gives you immense power. Unfortunately, the system does have a high rate of error of about 4%. Before the products are officially launched by the company, Oxford Nanopore says that they aim to trim that error rate down to anywhere between a tenth of a percent to less than two percent by developing better, more efficient nanopores. The grid ion nodes contain a consumable cartridge with about 2,000 nanopores on them, capable of processing tens of gigabases of sequence data in a 24-hour period. Remember that a single read of the human genome uh, is about three gigabases, so, we're talking up to tenfold coverage in 24 hours for a genome, which is almost unimaginable. The portable and disposable mini ion will feature 500 nanopores and cost less than $900. And given that the other systems that we've discussed are hundreds, thousands of dollars in cost, that again is simply astounding. While the company has not priced the full size grid ion unit yet, it expects that the cost per genome sequence will be competitive with other systems. If the company is able to keep the price down to several thousand dollars per unit, it will bring about an even greater revolution than I have predicted previously. Such affordable technology could transform diagnostic medicine. Imagine not just sequencing somebody's genome. If they are ill with an infection, imagine being able to scan patients using this cheap sequencing technology and immediately seeing what viruses or bacteria that they are infected with. It could completely change the world of medicine. At the conference, the reps for Oxford Nanopore said that by 2013, they hope to sequence an entire human genome in just 15 minutes. They said that it will require 20 of their grid ion units running in parallel, equipped with 8,000 nanopores each. But they insist that it can be done. Having cut my teeth on the old-fashioned system of sequencing, I cannot even imagine that speed. Given such a system, as Oxford describes, you could sequence 96 human genomes a day. Welcome to the future, ladies and gents. It has arrived with bells on. Speaking of the future being here, there is a report out of February's annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Vancouver that will blow some of you away. For years, a slew of SF writers, including Robert Heinlein, Andrea Norton, H. Beam Piper, Philip K. Dick, Frank Herbert, William Gibson, etc., etc., have predicted a future in which we will have quote-unquote vat-grown meat, and we will no longer be dependent on growing livestock for food. Dr. Mark Post of Maastricht University in the Netherlands reported at the meeting that hamburger made from meat grown in the laboratory may be ready to eat by the end of this year. So far, Post and his team have been using bovine stem cells to regenerate pieces of skeletal muscle that are anywhere between 3 and 5 centimeters in length. Those tissues seem to be healthy and sterile and edible. In his presentation, Post cited a growing global demand for meat and the massive environmental costs of raising livestock, he said, quote, "We need to get alternatives." Unquote. Host seems to think that with adequate funding, lab-grown meat products may be commercially available in grocery stores near you in the next ten years. The next story is completely unrelated to anything we have discussed previously in this podcast. In fact, the next story is so completely out there that I have never even considered the possibility of what I'm about to tell you. For a moment, let's talk about the concept of a crystal. We all kind of know what a crystal is. We know that salt is a crystal of sodium chloride and that diamonds are crystals of carbon. But what is a crystal? And why is there a difference between a diamond and a chunk of coal, which are both made of the exact same thing? Well, a crystal is a substance in which all the molecules are aligned into a regular repeating three-dimensional matrix. Most substances have molecules higgledy-piggledy all over the place in three-dimensional space, with no regularity in their structure. Crystals are tougher materials because of this three-dimensional matrix. Diamonds, for example, are carbon crystals, where the carbon has been forced into a close repeating matrix by very high heat and pressure. That makes it far stronger than any piece of coal. Okay, so now we know what a physical crystal is in nature. Now I'm going to tell you something that will probably remind you of an episode of the old Saturday morning TV show, The Land of the Lost. And I do not mean the crappy movie with Will Ferrell. For those of you who do not know The Land of the Lost, it was a TV show back in the 1970s in which two kids and their dad got trapped inside a closed universe where dinosaurs, lizard people called Sleestacks, and other aliens could be found. The show was essentially about how the Marshall family could survive such an alien environment, and even eventually escape. One of the aliens, written in an episode by Star Trek's Walter Koenig, by the way, was an Altruzan lizard man called Enoch, who carried advanced technology with him. One of the artifacts that Enoch carried with him was a glowing crystalline lozenge called a magetti, a fourth-dimensional node, as he calls it, which allowed one to travel in space and time. It was, in short, a time crystal. Well, as a kid, I thought that was very, very cool, and I was fascinated with that entire theme that the land of the lost kept up for a couple of seasons, of the crystals having such abilities. Well, apparently I was not the only one enthralled with the land of the lost. Time crystals could actually become the next big thing in theoretical physics. In a new article this month on the science website archive.org, Nobel Prize winning physicist Frank Wilczek lays out the mathematics of how an object moving in its lowest energy state could experience a sort of structure in time that is similar to a time crystal. Wilczek describes how such a time crystal would be the temporal equivalent of an everyday 3D physical crystal, like a diamond. No one knows how important time crystals may turn out to be, or whether they even have any practical applications at all. But Wilczek says, quote, This concept of a time crystal reminds me of the excitement I felt when I helped describe a new class of fundamental particles called anyons back in the early 1980s. I had very much the same kind of feeling as I'm having here that I have found a new logical possibility for how matter might behave that opens up a new world with many possible directions. Wilczek came up with time crystals after teaching a class about classifying crystals in three dimensions and wonders why that structure couldn't extend into a fourth dimension, that is, time. To visualize a time crystal, think of Earth looping back to its same location in space every 365 days. The planet repeats itself periodically as it moves through time, like a crystal does in three dimensions. But a true time crystal would not be a planet, but an object in its lowest energy state, like an electron stripped of all possible energy. Wilczek says that this object could endlessly loop in time, just as electrons in a superconductor could theoretically flow through space for all eternity. In one sense, a time crystal would be a perpetual motion machine. That is, if scientists could build one in a lab, it would run forever. And it wouldn't violate the second law of thermodynamics because the crystal would be in its lowest energy state, and you couldn't actually get any energy extracted from it. As if time crystals are not weird enough, we'll check wants to extend the concept into imaginary time, a theoretical concept of the fourth dimension that runs in a different direction than the one people experience. I won't even try to understand that one. All I know about imaginary time is that it involves what you plan on getting done on a Saturday morning until real life starts to interfere. The last story of the night involves alcohol. I suspect that many famous authors, including Raymond Chandler, James Joyce, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Ernest Hemingway, Dylan Thomas, William Faulkner, Edgar Allan Poe, and Hunter S. Thompson, would just laugh at the next story and simply say, duh, although I suspect they would probably say that in a much more literary manner. So what is this alcoholic story? In the journal Consciousness and Cognition, an article that was published at the end of January by Dr. Jennifer Wiley and colleagues at the University of Illinois, suggests that, quote, a composer or artist may indeed find creative benefits from intoxication, unquote. Yes, Dr. Wiley and company have found evidence that drinking alcohol may start creative juices flowing and help you to solve creative problems. Research subjects who drank themselves tipsy solved more problems demanding verbal resourcefulness in less time than sober volunteers did. In the study, 20 social drinkers watched an animated movie The volunteers then drank enough of a vodka cranberry drink to reach an average peak alcohol blood level of 0.075%. That is just below the current 0.08% cutoff for legal intoxication in the U.S. Another 20 social drinkers watched the same movie without drinking. Volunteers in both groups then completed a creative problem-solving task. For each of 15 items, subjects saw three words. For example, moon, flash, and spot. And they had to think of a fourth word that would form a phrase with each of those first words, such as light, moonlight, flashlight, spotlight. On average, participants at peak intoxication solved about nine problems correctly, versus approximately six winners for the sober group. It took an average of about 11.5 seconds for intoxicated participants To generate a correct solution, compared to 15.2 seconds for sober volunteers. Both groups performed comparably on the test before the study began. There are a couple of hypotheses why we may be seeing this inebriation effect. The paper suggests that intoxication may aid verbal creativity, partly by lowering the ability to control one's thoughts, It also may be that intoxicated individuals become less afraid to make mistakes in their tasks after drinking. That could be another possible creativity booster. And I have to admit personally, if I was not deathly afraid of becoming dependent on alcohol as part of the actual process of writing, I would try it. I have noticed that in social drinking situations, my verbal output in conversation does go up. And that I often have insights while thinking aloud that I may not have had otherwise. When I was a student working on my doctorate, I remember many a pleasant Friday afternoon at the unofficial end of the work week when my very British thesis advisor would have a lab meeting in his office, which included a very large bottle of wine that had been chilling there in his fridge all day. My fellow students and postdocs used that time to loosen up and discuss our experiments from the week those meetings almost always resulted in a better understanding of what we were observing. I'm not sure that would have been the case under completely sober conditions. However, it just seems to me that you have to be very careful once that magic genie has been let out of the bottle. It's far too easy to get to the point where the magic no longer works, no matter how much more alcohol you imbibe. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. If you plan on writing and imbibing at the same time, then do so in a most careful manner. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella.
2: There you go. Thank you, James. So now we come on to that little new part of the show that I've started last week. And like I say, it's just where to get them. You know what I mean? So if you've got, you know, a book out there and you want to just dabble in, you know, let, let Starship so far hear the first few chapters, get in, get in touch with us, you know, and we'll try and play it on the show. This is A Jar of Wasps by Lewis Villison. Jar of Wasps is available for download from Anarchy Books on the 6th of April, published $3.99. And Nicky Books, if you know it, is Andy Remick's little baby there. All sorts of stories over there. I'll put a link on to the actual website. Do think about buying this when it comes out. Well, if you like it, there you go. That, that is it. Lewis is a science and technology writer with published work in 25 different magazines and newspapers, including the Daily Mail, BBC Focus magazine. His monthly Ask Lewis column has run in PC format for 16 years. Go on, sir. He has worked as a coast guard rescuing people from cliffs, red rabbits and quails, and has made a couple of short films for the web. He studied zoology at Oxford University, the only point of which so far has been to refer to it in passing on his author page. <laughs> That's fantastic. All that work, all that work. <laughs> Lewis, this is fantastic. So, And Lewis is narrating it as well. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present the first few chapters of... A Jar of Wasps by Louis Villazon
0: Suppose you're standing on top of a volcano. Suppose the volcano is erupting. You're stood there on a hillside and there's a couple of cubic kilometres of magma underneath you waiting to come out. What happens next depends on what kind of magma it is. Really runny magma, that stuff just kind of oozes out, like pus from a weeping sore. If you're choosing a volcano to stand on, this would be the one. I'm thinking more lower here, or Kilauea. Toasty, but undramatic. Down from that would be the magma that has some silica in it. This makes it thicker and stickier, so it comes out in splattery lumps, like jam bubbling on the stove. Jam made of liquid glass, glowing orange at 1200 degrees, mind you. But as long as you don't actually get any on you, you should be okay. But what's really bad is the magma with silica and dissolved gas in it. Because as that magma shoots up the volcano vent, the pressure drops by about 1.2 million atmospheres, and all that gas comes out of solution. This makes it expand and accelerate still further until, just before it reaches the surface, the force of this fiery froth overwhelms the tensile strength of the rock around it, and the entire top of the mountain gets blown off. When Krakatoa did this in 1883, two-thirds of the island was vaporised and the bang the loudest sound ever in recorded history. When you're standing on top of this kind of volcano, the hypersonic pressure wave will kill you before the magma even reaches you. It will take just hundred and seventy nanoseconds to reach you and another 25 to tear you to atoms. Or something. It's not very long, is my point. Fortunately, your mind works a lot faster under stress, and as long as you're prepared to skip over the boring bits, there should still just be time to see your life flash before your eyes. In my case, I had a running start because apart from the time when the dustman threw out my papier-mâché train set landscape by mistake when I was four and the time I fell 28 feet out of a tree onto my brother asleep in his pram and nearly killed us both, my life had been pretty dull. Oh, there were other odd moments here and there. Having sex, driving my first car, having sex while driving my first car, that kind of thing. There weren't nearly enough of them, though, And if it wasn't for the stuff that has happened in the last three days, those 195 nanoseconds would really have dragged. Rewind. Two days, 17 hours, 13 minutes. I woke up this morning, trouble knocking at my door. Sounds like a line from a bad blues song, doesn't it? I'll be honest, it was actually the postman doing the knocking, and I had already been awake for a while. But what he brought with him was definitely trouble. Trouble in a cardboard box. Unusual packaging, possibly, but then I have never really considered the correct way to pack a catastrophe before. My name is Graham, and I'm a geologist. We don't get much mayhem in geology, it's not that kind of field. I know some geophysicists who can cause a ruckus, but in geology, we pretty much like to keep the peace. To a geologist, a glacier is a devastating torrent of icy destruction. To everyone else, It's a frozen hillside, creeping towards the sea at about six feet a year. If something exciting happens more than once every hundred million years, we have to sit down and breathe into a paper bag. When the postman came a-knocking, I was lying in bed, too cold and bored and dejected to do anything more constructive than lie on my stomach and watch a single woodlouse crawling along the edge of the skirting board. The clock said 10.00, but that's clocks for you. Always pushing their sanctimonious little message. You're late. You said you'd get up an hour ago and you were late then. You're always late. You're a late, lazy, useless oaf who is never on time and especially not now. That's what my clock says to me anyway. But then it's got problems of its own. Not a proper digital clock, you see. No LCD display. Just a big Rolodex of all the digits and a little motor to flip them over. Or not flip them over in this case. Because my clock, long ago, stripped all the teeth off its little cogs from constantly nagging me. And now... It always says 10.00. The fact that it was more or less right this morning was just making its behaviour all the more insufferable. It was actually 12 minutes past 10, according to my wristwatch, and I was definitely late. But I had promised myself that I was not going to go to work until Louise rang to apologise in full for the entire last two weeks. There would be all sorts of minor bureaucratic hell to pay if she didn't hurry up and do that soon, but nothing that anyone but me and my line manager would ever notice. They couldn't fire me without acknowledging that my unauthorised absence had cost the company somehow. And this would be tantamount to admitting that I was useful. They'd never do that. The HR department at Nordic Proventura prided itself on its despise and conquer approach. I held my breath to ward off the sudden draft and threw back the covers. I had slept in my pants in a fit of pique. I was cold and tacky with my own sweat and grime. I would normally be wearing my old berserk T-shirt... But that had gone, along with Louise, and I refused to replace it, despite her. The door knocker clattered again. I pulled on last night's jeans and a scratchy black jumper and negotiated the stairs in a Fibonacci series of one, one, two, three, and finally the last five steps in a single leap onto the uneven tile floor of the hall. Through the frosted glass pane in the front door, I could see a figure in a day orange jacket holding a clipboard. I brushed my hair with my fingers and quickly rehearsed my indignant defence that I invariably spent Thursday mornings barefoot. Then I opened the door. The postman handed me a large box and slapped the clipboard on the top. This was stupid, because I couldn't sign the delivery note while I was holding the box in both hands. But perhaps he was getting me back for keeping him waiting on the doorstep. I set the box down in the hall and wrote, Uninspected, on the note next to the bit which said, I confirm that the goods have arrived intact and in good condition. Just to annoy him. Here you go, I said, handing it back to the postman. Cheers, he said, in a way that conveyed the opposite. I shut the door and carried the box into the sitting room. It seemed very large for a let-me-come-back-what-was-I-thinking present. I fetched a vegetable knife from the kitchen and slipped through the packing tape across the lid. Inside were a lot of scrunched-up balls of what appeared to be pages torn from a telephone directory. Beneath this layer was a large cloth bundle. As I lifted the bundle out of the box, I could see that it was made of white toweling material. Growing increasingly exasperated, I unwrapped the cloth. In the middle of what was now quite plainly a bath towel lay a greenish-grey ovoid lump. The surface looked a little rough, and there were small white flecks encrusting it. I picked it up, and it felt cold and hard and heavy. It was about the size of a modest Easter egg. It weighed about two kilograms. Well, on the face of it, I said to myself, it would appear that Louise is trying to win back your heart with a fucking stone. I was trying to stay calm, but there was no denying the disappointment. I emptied out the rest of the Yellow Pages packing balls. There was no card, no letter, not so much as a post-it note to hint at why she thought I might want this. Why does everyone do that? You're a geologist. You must really like stones. Here, have some gravel. Louise worked at Software Warehouse, but I didn't go around sending her HX disks all the time. Perhaps that's where I've been going wrong. I'll call her at work and make a nuisance of myself just to annoy her. I dialed customer services. She'd always refused to give me her direct line. The phone rang twice And then there were some high-pitched clicks and whistles. I was just beginning to think that I had dialed the Dolphinarium by mistake. when there was a brief silence. And then someone answered. Good morning, Software Warehouse. Gavin speaking. How can I help you? The mantra was chanted as a single long word. Ah, yes. Good morning. This is Graham Trevenan. Can I speak to Louise Ballantyne, please? Do you have your customer account number? "Er, what? Not to hand, no. What's your postcode? Um, look. "'I'm really not sure. House number?' "'17. But why... is that Mr Trevenan?' "'That's right, I just told you that.'
4: "'Hm.
0: According to this, all your items have already been dispatched,' said the rather bored and patronising voice. "'What items are those?' I demanded crossly. "'What?' "'What are these items that your computer is telling you have been dispatched?' "'Um... let me check.' "'There aren't any items, are there? Louise has just told you to fob me off with any old crap.' There was an uncomfortable silence. Look, I said, this isn't your fight. Just put me through to her. I just want to know why she sent me this stupid stone. The bored voice didn't exactly burst out with, you got the stone? Oh, well, that's completely different then. Why didn't you say so before? But nevertheless, there was another strange pause during which he could have thought it to himself had he been so inclined. When he spoke again, the tone was less patronising, almost insistent. I think she has sent you an email, Mr Trevenan. You should check it. Now. Thank you for calling Software Warehouse. Goodbye. The line went dead, and I was left holding the receiver and feeling a tiny bit weird. My first impulse was to call this Gavin person straight back and remind him to take his medication right away. I would probably get some other customer services loony, though, this time with a completely different set of symptoms. "'Anyway, perhaps Louise had written me her long, grovelling apology "'and was taking me on a holiday or something. "'Maybe this rock was like a sort of elaborate clue. "'Doubtless it would be very witty "'and contain oblique references to Cervantes or something.' "'The computer sat in a corner of the sitting room on a camping table, "'festooned with loose cables and various memory cards. "'I fired it up and opened mail.' The lights on the router flickered uncertainly as 350 offers for cut price medication, investment opportunities, and teenage Latinas were invisibly caught by the spam filter. Eventually, a message that wasn't pornography or a 419 scam appeared, with a subject line that said, Graham, this is urgent. What caught my eye was the full stop at the end. Normally, a classic spam subject line like that would warrant at least three exclamation marks, and maybe some pluses and a smiley or two. The message itself was blank, but there was a word attachment. I dragged the file to the firewalled flash key, no sense in giving any lurking viruses the free run of my hard drive, and ran a quick scan. Seemed clean, so I opened the document. Someone clattered the front door politely. Crumbs, Louise, give me a chance, I haven't even read it yet. I leapt up and ran to the door, trying to stay casual. But this time, there were two men at the door, neither of them postmen. One was fifty-something with a rather square jowly face, immaculately groomed black hair flecked with grey, and small steel-rimmed glasses. Stood just behind was a younger man with long ash blonde hair pulled back into a ragged ponytail and a scruffy goatee beard. Both were wearing expensive suits. The older man's was a dark pinstripe, and he sported rather ostentatious silver cufflinks. Ponytails was a muted green double-breasted affair top button of his shirt was undone beneath a loose maroon tie with some sort of yellow crest on it. He was carrying a large silver briefcase, like the ones used for photographic equipment. Oh, Christ, it's the Jehovah's, I thought. Good morning, sir, began the one with the cufflinks. He had an American accent of some sort. Or maybe Canadian. We rent commercial premises not far from here, and a package arrived today in the mail that we think belongs to you. Maybe you also received one that should have gone to us. Oh. Right. Thank goodness for that. I thought you were the God Squad. I did get a weird parcel this morning. I was just wondering what to do with it. What was my one, then? What was in it? I haven't opened your package, so I couldn't tell you what's in it, sir, said Cufflinks, in a humorlessly polite tone of voice. Right. No, of course you haven't, I said, feeling rather told off. You'd better come in while I fetch yours. I left the door open and walked back into the sitting room, suddenly feeling self-conscious about my half-dressed state again. I'm afraid I did open yours, I called over my shoulder as I wrapped the stone egg back up in its towel and scooped up all the loose bits of packing. After all, it was addressed to me. I stopped in my tracks as the beginning of an inkling trickled down my spine. The postman had asked me to sign for the parcel and my name had already been typed in the space next to my signature. If it had just been misaddressed, how did it also have my name on it? Hang on a second, I said, turning round. Are you sure this parcel is yours? I mean... Can you tell me what's in it, for a start? As I looked up, I saw Ponytail come into the room. He put the briefcase down and reached into his jacket. When he withdrew his hand, it was holding something that looked alarmingly like a gun. He didn't wave it. He pointed it straight at me, and the way he held it made it quite clear that here was a man who had held that gun in a lot of similar situations before. (laughs)
2: And there you go. Like, see, I'll put a link on if you fancy that little book. Please, three ninety nine. Sixth of April, it comes out. Well, that is today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. I certainly have. Until next week. Just like to say, good day from me. Will our heroes survive this
4: terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
4: Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. A ventilation procedure
3: initiated. Shovel set for wash. Airlock will be in
1: 3, 2 i